to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. I'm James Brissione, author of the new book, The Flavor Matrix, which I wrote with my wife, Brooke Parkhurst. Let me just start with a few of your impressive titles. Director of Culinary Research at the Institute of Culinary Education, ICE, Celebrity Chef, and the first ever two-time champion of Chopped. I'd like to add culinary scientists to the list because you teamed up with IBM supercomputer Watson to discover flavor combinations based on different foods compatibility. Before we dig into the book, I'm dying to hear about your time at IBM and cooking with Watson. I mean, that was really, thank you so much for having me on, Susie. Um, That was really an incredible experience that changed so much for me in the way I cook and the way I think about cooking and flavor. Uh, you know, that opportunity working with Chef Watson, which, which all began, you know, in, in my role at ICE, the Institute of Culinary Education. You know, IBM came to, came to us at ICE uh, with this idea about how they wanted to use a computer to help people be more creative. And I kind of heard their pitch and just kind of laughed in their faces. I was like, yeah, right. Like a computer knows more about cooking than me. Um, and I was very skeptical going in, but I thought, you know what, let's, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. You know, if, if, and if anything, I can say that I beat the computer, uh, that's <laughs> feeling very cocky. And so, you know, we went through this kind of experiment really, and, and no one really knew what was going to happen or how it was going to turn out. Um, where a computer was suggesting ingredients that we would then take into the kitchen and use to create a dish, you know, really from, from scratch, uh, no, you know, no measurements, no quantities, no instructions on how to use the ingredients. Just Watson told us that you could use these ingredients to create a dish. Um, and it's going to taste good if you do it right, basically. So immediately as I, I saw, I was like, the, these combinations of ingredients were coming out. I was like, well, why, why does it say that those ingredients would be good together? And then we started kind of working backwards through the system and, and finding some of the science and some of the connections, um, you know, that Watson was, was making just using a, this incredibly dense data, uh, you know, essentially a, about flavor. And I was absolutely fascinated by, by the process and, and really just kind of ignited me to want to go learn more about it. And, um, I realized that it didn't really, that information didn't really exist anywhere outside of, a the most powerful supercomputer in the world. Um, and that's what put me on the journey to start creating the flavor matrix. I'm going to read a passage from the book that blew my mind. Strong pairings in a flavor matrix like citrus or olives indicate that there may be a greater connection between the ingredients. It shows that the ingredients have something in common, maybe they're native, to the same area or have a botanical relationship or similar flavor profile. Was that something that Watson kind of came up with? It was, you know, it was something that as, as I kept looking at, at the data and, you know, and, and seeing these connections and, and in research, you know, the, I mean, just a massive amount of research that went into creating the flavor matrix that I started seeing and we saw, you know, these really strong pairing scores between different ingredients and, you know, there was a reason for them. We could often, you know, trace them back to something. I think olive, olive is one of the most interesting examples and, 
Um, it also kind of sent us down, you know, this path. I mean, you know, there's the aid, the age old adage of what grows together goes together. Uh, and there seems to be, you know, a lot of evidence through a lot of these pairing scores that we saw that, a, you know, a lot of flavor and ingredients is derived from the environment. So, you know, plants that are native to, to similar geographical er- areas, um, tend to be good matches because there's, there's things from those, from that environment that are, you know, kind of imprinting certain parts of the flavor into that food, which, which to me was really fascinating. I think can be a whole other, you know, rabbit hole to go down at some point and spend another couple of years researching. Talk about the old and new model of combining flavors. So, you know, I mean, for me, as a chef, I learned, I just, it was just something you learned. You, you cooked a lot and, you know, um, as a young chef and I was going, you know, going to create a new dish and, you know, I was going to make something with oysters. Uh, you know, if I didn't know immediately what, what the best ingredients to pair with oysters were, I'd just go to my you know massive collection of cookbooks and pull down every single one or the, the ones, you know, that I like the best and, and go to the index and look up oysters and, started looking at the ingredients that other chefs, you know, used. And so, you know, you learned a lot from, from what you saw, um, and, and tasted in, in other places and then through your own experience, um, you know, building what, what we call taste memory so that, you know, in my mind, I know, I know the flavor of the, of an oyster now, and I know the flavor of a shallot and, and I can kind of mentally combine those two without actually having to taste them. Um, but it relies so much on previous experience or having some familiarity, you know, with, with an ingredient. And I think, you know, now, nowadays we have such incredible access to ingredients. We can have, you know, ingredients from all over the world at our door in 24 hours if we just click a button and pay enough money for it. So, um, you know, there, to me, I think there, it's helpful to have, you know, another tool in your arsenal, another way to, um, sort of to think about flavor and, and analyze flavor, um, and, and sort of make decisions about what ingredients go together. And that's, that's the flavor matrix, which is, you know, I, I, for sports fans, I liken it to, you know, the analytics of cooking, um, you know, in, in baseball and other sports now analytics are big and you're looking at, um, you know, stats and, and, and using data, uh, to kind of make evaluations. And so that's the same thing we do in the flavor matrix. The, in this case, the data is, the chemical compounds in each ingredient that create the flavor in that ingredient. So we're talking, you know, we're down to the molecular level, talking about each one of these you know, individual little compounds. And, you know, like in, in something like a strawberry, there are just over 400 different compounds that make, that combine to make the flavor of the strawberry. And only a few of those are, are readily perceptible by, by nose. When you slice into a strawberry, you're going to be able to detect some of them. You know, so there are so many more um, that, make up, that make up the flavor of the strawberry that we don't necessarily – wouldn't necessarily detect on our own with the nose. But when we're able to look at those ingredients uh, or look at those compounds in, you know, in analysis – and then we can start finding these hidden connections between ingredients because when when two ingredients have a bunch of these compounds in common, we can very accurately predict that they're going to taste good together when we combine them in a dish, which is how we land you know, at something like mushrooms and strawberries together in a dish where that doesn't make any sense. And, and I would never put those together on my own. 
But, you know, through the research, we see that connection and go, oh, well, that's that's kind of an interesting, weird thing. But it actually tastes really great. God, it's so logical. And no one has ever talked about this. That's crazy. You know, it's a real, you know, it's and, and we talk about it in the book, kind of the origin of this whole concept that it, it's it is quite new. I mean, especially if you you know look at it, the scope of all cooking, um, it's. Less than 20 years ago, um, Heston Blumenthal and his research team at the Fat Duck um, kind of put this theory forward, the flavor pairing theory. Um, and yeah, it's been kind of you know quiet in, in some in a, in a few chef nerd circles just for a little bit, but uh, you know never it hasn't moved much beyond that. And really, I didn't you know didn't wasn't didn't kind of make its way into my radar until, you know, five, six years ago when we started working with Chef Watson, who was, you know, using uh, flavor pairing theory to make some of its decisions about, about ingredients. You mentioned taste memory earlier, and this book relies on chemistry rather than taste memory. Explain what taste memory is. So, you know, and I, and I think it's important, you know, with the book, and I think often when we're, you know, dealing with, with anything new, and, you know, to kind of, you know, remember and with the, the flavor matrix, I really love to, you know, encourage people to, to learn this and use it as a, you know, as another tool, um, you know, in their arsenal, a way to make decisions about ingredients and, and think about the flavor pairing uh, so that you can add that to, you know, what you already have, you know, in, in, in what we call taste the memory, which is basically, you know, it's, it's not like those memories you cherish from, from grandma's you know, roast chicken or, or what, you know, whatever grandma used to make for you, but you do remember the flavor of that. And you also, you know, remember the flavor of a lot of the things that you've tasted before. And so, um, you know, the more you eat, the more you travel you start to, you know, build taste and memory. And, you know, in, in, in chefs, it's something we kind of work at, you know, in our careers, it, it's, it's a little bit, it's a bit of training your palate as well. It's kind of knowing flavors just inherently and being able to kind of combine them in your mind to, to put two, two, two flavors together and sort of know what it's going to taste like without actually having to taste them together. Um, but I think, you know, that really kind of elite level of taste memory to be able to do that is, is something that, you know, just professional chefs have. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of spend your whole life developing it. It's, it's not easy. Talk about the difference between taste and flavor. Yeah, this is, you know, really one of the, the things we'd like to focus on in the book and we, and we talk a lot about. And it's 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 an important difference, really, um, because we tend to use those two words interchangeably. But in reality, they come from different places. Uh, taste comes from the tongue. Flavor comes from your nose. It comes from, or all of your olfactory senses together, not just in your nose, but in your, in the back of your throat and, and sort of all around. Um, taste really only refers to six specific sensations, which is, you know, the, the taste that we know, um, sour, sweet, salty, bitter, uh, those are kind of the four classic ones. And then, you know, two more that we've recently added, uh, with umami and fat. And these are things that are just, that are actually detected on the tongue. A chemical reaction happens on the tongue and relays it, relays that information to the brain about, you know, what's in, what's in the food that you're tasting. You know, 
the tongue, I, I like to kind of describe the tongue's job as being a, a nutrient and toxin detector. It's just kind of like the gatekeeper for your body. When your tongue recognizes sugar, it signals your brain, your brain is happy. It knows that things with sugar in them are things like ripe fruits. So they're, they're, they have good nutrition, um, or, you know, it's just sugar and it's something that your body can easily and quickly utilize for energy and your body likes that. So it wants to take in more, you know, with umami, it's a, it's means protein, it's amino acids coming in and your body knows it needs that, you know, as building blocks. When it tastes something that's, you know, very sour, um, that's often, you know, a sign of, of, uh, underripe fruits or vegetables. Uh, they all tend to be sour and, you know, they don't ha offer much benefit to our body. So we tend to not like those quite as much. Uh, things that are bitter are often a sign of toxin. So when your tongue detects a toxin, it kind of makes you pause and be a little more cautious about what you're eating and wonder if you actually want to swallow it or not. Uh, so this is really in you know, I think another great example is like when you're at the beach and you get hit in the, hit in the face with a big wave and you get that mouthful of seawater, you immediately start coughing and, and trying to spit it out because your tongue instantly recognized that high concentration of salt is not good for your body and doesn't want to allow it in. So that's, that's really what our tongue is doing. And then everything that we perceive as, as flavor uh, is coming through our nose. It's coming through these chemical compounds that we talked about that are in the food um, that actually create flavor. So that part of the equation when we talk about taste and flavor is so much more complex and so much more nuanced. Um, but often when we describe fruit, food, it's just, you know, savory or salty or sweet. And, you know, we don't get into talking about all of these, you know, wonderful, rich, complex flavors that exist in food. Um, you know, just like we do in wine or coffee or beer. Three factors help form a complete picture of flavor. Uh, you wrote in the book, taste, aroma, and texture. But you said that aroma is far more influential. Talk a little bit about that. When we take a bite of food, and, and there's you know so much ongoing research and, and kind of developing science around this, we're really kind of understanding the, the physiology of, of taste and perception and, and all of this very well, or starting to understand it much better than we ever have before. Um, we now know that about 80% of what we taste when we ha when we have a bite of food, that eighty percent is coming through the flavor receptors, through through olfactory, through through aroma, and about twenty percent is relayed by the tongue. And now things like you know texture, um, sound, you know actual you know sound can influence uh, how we perceive food, lights, you know, so all of our senses really combine to, to change how we perceive a bite of food. But the heavy lifting is certainly being done, done by the nose and the tongue. I bought my very first durian in Chinatown a few weeks ago, and I can vouch for that in terms of aroma. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was so smelly. It is. It takes a day or two to clear that out of the house. Huh? <laughs> and out of your nose. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote this book with Brooke Parkhurst. Tell us about her. She is my wonderful wife. Uh, we live together here in, actually, 
in the West Village of New York, um, but not for much longer. We're actually about to head down to Florida to open our first restaurant uh, down on the Gulf Coast in Florida. Um, so that is that's super exciting. And Brooke will be the wine director there, um, and I'll be the chef. And um, it's a whole new adventure for our for our little family, but but very exciting. Um, but Brooke has been, you know, obviously she's been my life partner for over 10 years now, but also, uh, my cooking partner and, and writing partner. She is, um, a, a wonderful writer. And before we met, she, she had, was finishing her first novel about a small town Southern girl moving to New York city who stayed connected to home through, through the recipes she made. Um, so, you know, our kind of, our pairing uh, of being chef and writer has been has been a really great one, and this is our um, this is our second book that we've written together. You know, we're finding a way to to take all of this you know, complicated uh, you know scientific jargon and and put it in a form that you know really is accessible to anybody and everybody. I think one of the many special things about this cookbook is that it has 150 of the most commonly used ingredients that surprisingly work together. So you're not out there searching for weird oddball ingredients. Yeah, that was, you know, I mean, we really wanted to, you know, really wanted to focus on ingredients that people are using every day, because I think, um, you know, often, you know, when you, when you open a book and, and you go through an ingredient list and you see two ingredients, there, I don't even know where to find, I don't even know what that is. I don't know where to find those. Uh, you know, it can be a big turnoff. So we, we really wanted this to be, you know, a book that, you know, worked on different levels for different people, for professional chefs and, and, you know, really big foodie home cooks and just kind of the average everyday cook who, you know, has their dishes that they make all the time and love, but, you know, was looking for a way to sort of change things up a little bit. So, you know, even if you just want to find, you know, one new ingredient to add to, to your favorite dish that you always make just to kind of change it up or get a little different take on it, I think you can find that in the Flavor Matrix. Last week, I made your shrimp and lamb gumbo on page 89, and the spices in this dish were so minimal, but the flavor was huge. Yeah, that's – and I thank you so much. I had a lot of fun following along on Instagram watching as you as you were making all these dishes. I think it looks like you did a fabulous job. So Thank you. In my tiny I'm West glad. Village kitchen. <laughs> I'm glad you were digging in there and, and, and making these. They looked great. Um that to me was one of these just wonderfully surprising combinations um, was, was shrimp and lamb. You know, those two things I would never think about putting together, um, but their flavors match up so well. And, you know, like you said, when you, you know, when you, when you start with kind of flavor first in, in, uh, you know, in a recipe, you don't need as much to, to really bring it all together and, and to make it happen. So um, that's a quick, simple recipe that, um, you know, I think really comes together so nicely because, you know, we start building on those common flavors from the beginning with the shrimp and the lamb. I also made the lemon curd with crunchy olives on page 181, and I have no words for this. It was so good. Can you describe this heavenly dish? I think anyone who's you know, eaten at a, any form of Mediterranean style restaurant, you've probably had a seafood dish that has lemon and olives in it, or, uh, you know, a vegetable dish with lemon and olives. So they're not, it's not a surprising combination, but 
you know, as I looked at it and, and saw just what a really, really strong combination it was, I thought, sort of thinking about, well, why don't we use that more? And what are what are other ways we can use that fantastic combination um, that are a little more interesting or a bit more surprising? And so naturally, I was like, well, let's make a dessert out of them. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's exactly what we did. So starting with kind of, um, it's, it's, it starts like a classic lemon curd with, um, you know, just egg yolks and sugar and lemon juice and lemon zest to really, to really get the most intense flavor. Um, but then as once the, the curd is cooked and it's nice and thick on the stove and it has just kind of that creamy, you know, beautiful, smooth consistency, take it out and start whipping it. Um, and as it cools, emulsifying olive oil into it instead of the classic butter, um, that olive oil gives it, a, you know, a smooth, beautiful shine and, and, and really, you know, gorgeous consistency and such a unique flavor. Uh, you know, it finishes with a little bit of butter as well, just because it kind of needs it for the structure. It tends, it, it's too runny if it's made with just olive oil. Um, so just to kind of, you know, give it a little bit of structure, we add that butter, but the flavor, um, and shine that that olive oil gives to lemon curd is just so, so fantastic. And then, uh, you know, we take top it off with these little dehydrated olives that we just mix, you know, coat with a little bit of honey and, and bake in a low oven until they're, until they're crunchy and they're salty and sweet and just, you know, the perfect match to that lemon curd. I also made the crab mango dill and poblano salad on page 241. That was like perfect for summer. I wanted to talk to you about the cucumber in this recipe. I felt like the chopped poblano was enough crunch. What did the cucumber bring to this dish? Yeah, the, the chopped poblano does does give some nice crunch and, and you know, a bit of spice. Um, the cucumber has these really great kind of it's, it's almost sort of the bridge um, in, in those ingredients because the two most prominent aromas in cucumber are just like green, grassy, and melon. And so they're kind of the, the link between the pepper and the herbs, which are, you know, the, which peppers tend to have whatever type of pepper we're talking about. In, in this case, the poblana, um, you know, tend to have a little bit of that kind of melon and fruity flavor. Um, but and and the, the the dill, which I think is is such a great herb that's just not nearly used enough. Um, but to to sort of match it back to the mango, um, that that cucumber is is sort of there as as that bridge, and and I think you know adds an, a just another great layer of crunch to the dish. In your opinion, what was the most surprising flavor combination that you came across for this book? Oh, I think I I think I tipped it earlier with the. Um, with the strawberry, strawberry and mushrooms. See, mine was the blueberry and horseradish jam. Uh, well, you know, that, that is, um, that is another great, the blueberry and horseradish really is a lot of fun. Um, and you, you would, I think would, would love this. I, we were at an event down in Florida, um, that we did, uh, down in Ocala, Florida, and we had a bunch of local chefs and they got together and they all had different pairings from the flavor matrix. And we had this great big kind of, uh, local or chef's gala, uh, where they all made different dishes with their own, you know, of their own design from pairings out of the flavor matrix. And we had a mixologist there who made a blueberry and horseradish cocktail, really, really great, unique, 
just the, oh, the wonderful flavor. Um, but yeah, the blueberry and horseradish jam is such a great condiment and a, and a lot of different ways you can use that. Um, you know, blueberries on their own have just these little tiny hints of kind of, um, pine and, and almost, you know, like what we would associate with like rosemary, these, these little hints of, of pine in them. And, um, that's, you know, a really prominent aroma in, in horseradish as well. So it's, it's one of those things that, again, you wouldn't necessarily perceive on your own, but when you start to see the flavors in those ingredients and then you start to make those connections, it all, it all makes sense and, and kind of, you know, shows you the way. But that is, you know, and, and that's really with a lot of the recipes in the flavor matrix, they're, they're more like that blueberry and horseradish jam, that they're, they're meant to be something wonderful that you can make and use in a bunch of different ways. Uh, that can be a great condiment on, you know, a cheese plate or charcuterie board. It's a wonderful spread on sandwiches and there's, you know, lots of different ways you can use it. So I saw the Flavor Matrix book cover um, on a Times Square billboard. Is this the <laughs> first ever cookbook that's been featured in Times Square? Oh boy, I don't know. I sure, I sure hope so. <laughs> I think so. I've never seen a cookbook in Times Square. Uh, that was very, very exciting. And once again, my, my wonderful wife knows all of the right people, um, who were, who were able to make that happen. But yes, wow. we saw the flavor matrix up in, up in the big bright lights of, uh, of Times Square. It was really a thrilling moment. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Brooke and I write together, uh, at the couple's kitchen. Um, so thecoupleskitchen.com, um, also the couple's kitchen on Instagram and, uh, on Twitter and Instagram, you can also find me under James Persium, just, just my name. So basically if you just throw my name into a Google search, you'll probably find out more than you ever wanted to know about me. What a wonderful conversation. Thanks James for coming on cookery by the book podcast. Thank you for having me, Susan. It's been a lot of fun. Follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book. Twitter is I am Susie Chase. And download your kitchen mixtapes, music to cook by, on Spotify at Cookery by the Book. And as always, subscribe in Apple Podcasts.